Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, signed and sealed migration flights to take off by the spring as government threat strikes a fresh deal with Rwanda. And as Israel's ground invasion enters Gaza's second city, we speak to the mother of one of the hostages still being held captive by Hamas. Plus, a dark day for Britain as we're told to stock up on candles to keep the lights on. We'll tell you why. So I'm coming next. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. What the heck is going on? I go out the country for a couple of days and all hell seems to be breaking loose. We've got the middle-of-the-road Tories threatening their own government over the human rights of illegal migrants. We've got a Deputy Prime Minister telling us to expect some major catastrophes that we'll need candles for. Prince Harry's back in court, begging for us to pay for his security. And there's yet more strikes being organised by doctors just so that you can have a miserable Christmas and New Year. Brilliant. Today, we saw the third Home Secretary in less than two years actually in Rwanda trying to breathe life into what very much looks like the remains of a dead policy. James Cleverly popped across to Kigali to sign a new treaty with the African nation, which is designed to make it possible to send migrants there when they arrive on our shores. Except, of course, it won't, because Tory MPs and judges have joined the lefty lawyers and Gary Linekers of this world to make sure it doesn't happen. Meanwhile, Prince Harry's back in court whining about how badly treated he is just days after the Omid Scobie racism fiasco. But this time, the royals are on a charm offensive to keep little boy lost out of the papers. Whatever will Meghan have to say? Harry! And the junior doctors are at it again, announcing practically two weeks of strikes that will start before Christmas and won't stop until the second week of New Year. Cynical, manipulative, distressing and downright selfish is how I'd describe them. It looks like if you're a member of the BMA, you care more about striking, getting the Tories out and going to free Palestine marches than you do actually saving lives. It's bloody embarrassing. And as if all that wasn't enough, we're being told to look out for disasters and emergencies, terror-related, climate-related scam-related and just all-round internet-related. Oliver Dowden has warned us all to be on the lookout. He thinks we might be sent back to the pre-digital age. Does anyone know how to read a map? You'll be lost without my guide. We've got some great guests tonight, but we'll also be telling a terrible story about a young man who was taken hostage by Hamas on October the 7th, two months ago. Elia Cohen is still being held in the tunnels of Gaza in God knows what kind of conditions after being kidnapped from a music festival. His worried mother joins us tonight. And as ever, of course... We want to hear from you, your calls, your opinions and your thoughts. It's the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on.
Now, don't forget, you can, don't forget you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well, 0344 499 1,000 calls will cost you at the national rate. The Home Secretary has signed a new deal in Rwanda with hopes to revive the government's deportation plan to the African country. The treaty would see British officials and lawyers stationed in the country to help process claims. Yesterday, James Cleverly unveiled a new five-point plan to slash migration by 300,000. And to talk about this and much more, I'm joined by writer and broadcaster Candice Holdsworth, deputy political editor at the Sun, Ryan Sabey, and historian, historian indeed, and broadcaster Ray... Hadel Mankiw, Rafe, I should start with you since I mispronounced this story. Um, you know, history is a very funny thing, isn't it? Uh, we're not sure that um, Mr Cleverly is making any history, but it was pointed out by Piers Morgan earlier today uh, when you've got three Home Secretaries who have gone out to Rwanda, which is actually more than any of the, uh, uh, the deportees, you know you might have a bit of a problem. It's not history, it's Groundhog Day, I think. <laughs> yes, on that, on that level, ab yes. absolutely. I mean, look... From, the, from day one, Rwanda was a distraction. You know, Rwanda is a teaspoon being used to empty a swimming yeah. pool. Uh, and it's still yet more bread and circuses. The idea that a single plane is going to take off by the spring is for the birds, yeah. <laughs> appropriately. Uh, and actually, that's one of the reasons why people are suggesting there may be a spring election, because the government's so worried that there'll be no takeoffs by right. the spring. They, want to get in, they may want to get in an election before then. Uh, but what this does show, it's, it's nice to see actually some decent conservative principles here, but it's far too late. Mm. And what the last two days have shown is that for all the talk of Suella Braverman being an extremist, being incompetent and unsuited for her position, being a lightweight compared to Sunak, the heavyweight, they've actually proven in the last two days that she was right all along. And if they had followed her yeah. advice the six times she proposed all of this, they wouldn't have 15% of their voters going off to the, to the Reform Party. Yes. And I just hope that no-one actually falls for this again because 2010, 15, 17 and 19, every Tory manifesto, they've pledged to bring immigration down. It's now three times what it was in 2019. Not the tens of thousands they promised, 1.3 million gross. We must never fall for their lies again. Well, I think that's very well put. Ryan, talking of an early election, I mean, the Tories are sort of staggering around trying to look for the best, worst-case scenario, aren't they? It's not like, when are we going to be popular? It's like, when are we not going to be so unpopular that nobody will vote for us at all? Yeah, that's the calculation Downing Street must be going through every single day. Do we go in the spring or do we wait until the autumn? But the trouble is... When you're 20 points behind in the polls and it doesn't look like they're, cl they're closing anytime soon, you're in no man's yeah. land. It's, it's really, really, really tricky. And there's so many MPs uh, are going to lose their seats. But I think Rishi Sunak, you know, back in his, the back of his mind, you do wonder he thinks, if I can just get over the, the two-year mark, that'll be ben maybe beneficial to him long-term. Yeah. You know, when he's being introduced on the world stage, yeah. this is a man who stood, you know, great, you know, United Kingdom Prime right. Minister for 14 months. Doesn't quite sound as good no. as the two years. So you just right. wonder. Who is actually, who is the, uh, the next sort of least serving Prime Minister after Liz Truss? Who served the, the, the shortest amount of time? You're testing me now, and I'm going to have to look that well, one up. Have a look. Yeah, tell yeah. me later, but, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one. It might well be Rishi Sunak by the end of whatever happens, because it seems to me there's now sort of Tories, Candice, who are saying quite openly, we're not going to let you rip up the Supreme Court ruling. We're not going to let you send anyone to Rwanda. So not only now have we got the lefty lawyers, we've got Gary Lineker, uh, we've got half the Tory party in Westminster saying, you can't do it. Yeah, the different factions in the Conservative Party and in, in particularly the One Nation Tories, mm. who I think can kind of smell a bit of weakness now. Yeah. There are a lot of people are starting to turn against the Rwanda deal. They're wondering if it's even practical. Yeah. There have been reports that Rwanda itself is souring on it. Yeah. And so now I think maybe they see it's their treaty, time to though. move. 
Yes, I mean, but, but it does. But the Supreme Court, from what I know, I don't know the exact legal nitty gritty. They could still get involved at yes. some point. But this is a real issue that needs to be solved. I mean, the fact of the matter is, with illegal immigration, if you're not allowing people to stay here, you need to find a safe third country for yeah. them to go to. Right. And if no other country like Rwanda wants to do a deal, what do you do? I mean, I was reminded of what other countries do just this very weekend. I flew to the Kennedy Airport uh, on Friday, and as I was standing waiting in the queue. Uh, where you're made to feel very much that you're going to be let in if they like the look of you, and you're not if they don't. Uh, there was an elderly woman uh, who had come from the Dominican Republic and she had a younger daughter or somebody with her, and the guy was giving her a really hard time at the desk because he's like, we need to see your return ticket. Where is your return ticket? And she's, like, going like this, trying to look through her phone, and I'm going, she's not getting in. You know, and that's a proper border. You know, we don't even have any of those anymore. Yeah, I mean, and there are countries, of course, in Africa and the Middle East where if you have been... If your application for asylum in the UK, for example, has been rejected, yeah. they won't allow you off the plane when you go when they when you're sent back. So yeah. where do those people go? There does, there does need to be a third party solution to all of this, or as some of us suggested from the beginning, to avoid all of the legal quagmire the government's found itself in, use the Ascension Islands as a as a as a processing centre. You know, it's it's a, you know, two thousand miles off, off off away from the UK. But the island of Nauru was a th over a thousand miles off the coast mm. of Australia also very sparsely populated. And it actually, it's the, it's the building of those sorts of processing centres which will act as a proper deterrent compared to what we yeah. have at the current time. But have we got, Ryan, a government which is now clinging on to this Rwandan thing because they're hoping against all of the odds and against hope and against their own people that it will somehow work? But even if it did work, even if they got one plane to fly there in the spring with 40 people on it, which is a pretty far away possibility, it seems to me, it's not going to make any difference to the electoral enthusiasm to vote for them. Uh, and it's certainly not going to put any kind of a mark or a hole in the probably now, what, 200,000 people waiting for us in the asylum application. This has just become totemic, and you just yeah. feel like Rishi Sunak is digging in day by day. Um, he would love to see those planes take off. He's talking about the spring. I was with him, I remember going to Dover with him about yeah. a year ago, and right. he says they're definitely going to go by... That was last summer. So, <laughs> I mean, we're, st we're still in the same position. We're still going to yeah. be in the same position probably th this, this time next year. But the trouble is he's got problems with illegal migration, legal migration, yeah. and the asylum backlog. So he's got everything coming right. at him from all different fronts. And then he's got the emergency legislation. So when he brings that in... Yeah, what's happened to that? This is, this, we think it may come as early as Thursday. Okay. But it may drift into, in, into next week. But the trouble is with that, he's going to annoy some of his cabinet. Mm some of his junior ministers mm. or some of his backbenchers, some of them are going to walk away, you'd have thought. You know, are they going to side with the, with the Robert Jenrick, who's right. sort of gang digging his heels in? Or is the likes of Alex Chalk, a lawyer, a KC, mm. it's just not going to stand for Britain disapplying or walking away from the European Convention or leaving the European yeah. Convention of Human Rights. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a balancing act yeah. for Rishi Sunak over the next few days. And Candice, how much of this will lead into the next battle for leader? Because can you see a moment where Rishi Sunak is kind of forced out before the next election? I can definitely imagine it. I don't know if Tory MPs will actually go for it, though. I mean, that would be entering the realm of the absurd. Yeah. Yet another Conservative leader gone. But I think, as everyone's been saying, we're starting to see people come to the forefront mm. and they're taking political risks. And they may be going against him a little bit. You know, with all the immigration stuff, the um, James Cleverley's five points, that was pushed on Rishi Sunak. Yeah. That was Tories from the right saying, no, we want to do this. He initially wasn't happy. And you think, well, they're doing that to sort of raise their profile. Right. There's definitely an electoral strategy there. And there's obviously 
history for this in, in the Tory party, right, isn't there, where, you know, they start to kind of assemble their troops and the Trojan horse is, is, is discovered and used for some reason or other. Somebody asks an awkward question, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of cabal-like meetings being held behind closed doors and in strange restaurants up, up, up and around West, Westminster. They're very good at this, the Tories. They're good at stitching each other up. I mean, that's kind of their speciality now. It's their raison d'etre, but yeah. it's also why it's the world's most successful political yeah. party. And normally they'd be well advised not to have a, another leadership... Uh, Convention so close to another election, but then you think, actually, how bad can it get? Well, they're facing they're facing a, a near extinction level event at the next election. Yeah. So actually, who knows whether it might be a, a safe option to actually right. jettison Sunak or not? Because I think it'll be silly. But either way, there are going to be eight eight former prime ministers standing on Remembrance Sunday next year by the cenotaph. <laughs> but this is the thing. I mean, there's, there will come a point. I'm sure, Ryan, you you'd be able to answer this, um, where perhaps somebody says, well, maybe the biggest liability we have is Rishi Sunak, and yeah. you know. How much worse would it be to put somebody else in who might just be a bit more palatable, who might just be somebody that can be a bit more enthusiastic about the Tory cause, a bit more enthusiastic about what they're supposed to stand for? I don't know what Rishi Sunak stands for. I don't think anybody does. I think, realistically, if it does come to another leader, I think that leader would have to call a general election pretty quickly. You yeah. can't have... Oh, yeah, straight away. But I think the, the worst thing and the thing in the background um, for Rishi Sunak is is annoying so many different individual groups in the Conservative Party mm. that you stumble towards a leadership election. He will win that leadership uh, election, or those folks yeah. of confidence. But do you really want someone who's so badly damaged by his party going into a general election? It would be horrendous mm. for them. Yeah. Big distraction. It, well, oh, it'd be terrible. This is where I roll out my conspiracy theory about David Cameron. That the real <laughs> yes. reason he was brought in was because he actually did win an election for the Tory party. I've maybe, just maybe, that. that's not as mad as it used to sound about two weeks ago. No, because they looked to the past when things were successful. Right. No ideas for the future. It's no like the way the Labour Party wistfully looks upon Tony Blair. Like, no matter what happens to Keir Starmer, if he does manage to win an election, he'll be the first Labour leader to win an election since Tony Blair. And that's a long time ago. But it's a complete failure to understand that the, the tectonic shift in the actual makeup of the political parties in terms of their voting base. Mm. And what it means, Cameron's appointment to the House of Lords, is that they've completely abandoned the Red Wall, even though they've actually already been abandoned by the Red Wall. Yeah. And they just want to shore up the, the Blue Wall. This is simply a defensive strategy to retain what little uh, remnants of a party they have left. Yes. And meanwhile, all the stuff that goes around uh, the noise of the migration issue um, is still going to uh, trouble them. We've got another doctor's strike announced today. Um, NHS doctors are going to go on strike effectively for two weeks because they're going to go out on the 20th, which means three days, 21, 20, 21, 22. Then you're into, you know, basically just before Christmas. So they don't have to work Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, maybe back on the 27th. Um, and then, you know, by then you're kind of into New Year, don't really do very much. I mean, they're basically off for two weeks. And yep. then they're saying another, another six-day strike in the New Year. It's horrendous. Yeah, probably hoping to apply maximum pressure during the winter when the NHS does come under a lot of pressure from all the viruses. But it's always the same. It's always about to fall over, isn't it? I mean, every single year, this is the end of the NHS. 24 hours to save the NHS, that was Ed Miliband, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a difficult situation. But the, the junior doctors don't want to lose public support by going, uh. you know, going on strike over that time. But Rishi Sunak's got the other problem of it. He wants to reduce the waiting list. Yeah. So the more you know, time the junior doctors spend out um, not at work, it's going to make it even more difficult to reduce that number. Oh, yeah. It's up to, you know, six or seven million on those waiting lists. It will well, be awful. And this is designed to cause maximum damage, of course, because already people have their holidays booked in the NHS, yeah. got bank holidays already there. Right. So they, they know exactly what they're doing. And let's not forget, of course, that the BMA has been captured by momentum elements. Yes. It's very much oh, a totally. left-wing dominated yeah, union. Yeah. 
Uh, not all doctors are on side with this. And of course, also don't forget, although their starting salary is £29,000 a year, by the third year of being a junior doctor, they're earning 40000 but actually it's more like 55000 yeah. when you get into all the extra pay for unsocial yeah. work. And by the fifth year, they're earning about 70000 in real terms, yeah. 55 base salary. So, I mean, you know, it's not much hardship. It was far worse back in the 1970s and 80s when people worked twice as long yeah. and were earning about £20,000 in today's wages. Yes. So you may ask whether it's a bit I of a think, snowflake I think they've lost issue the going on I here. think they've lost it very much already. But, guys, thank you very much indeed. My panel will be back later on, of course. Uh, but right now, the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham is here. And coming up, as the Israeli ground invasion ramps up in Gaza's second city, we speak to the family of one of the hostages who remains captive inside that place. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Around 240 people were taken hostage by Hamas after a brutal attack at a music festival on the 7th of October. So far, 79 hostages have been returned, but dozens more are still being held captive. One of those people was Elia Cohen, a 26-year-old Israeli who was at the festival with his girlfriend. I'm joined in the studio now by Elia's mother, Siggy Cohen. Siggy, welcome to uh, Talk TV. Thank you so much for, for coming here. Um, I can't imagine how you must be feeling because I was just saying to you, I saw my, my own son, who's 28, lives in uh, a faraway country, lives in America. I saw him this weekend for the first time in quite a long time. Um, and when I heard that you were coming in, I, I thought, I don't know what I'm going to say to you because you've been waiting now for two months for news of your son. Tell us, first of all, um, about him. Tell us what he's like, what sort of... What sort of boy is he? Elia is a very happy man. He's, a, he's very friendly. He had a lot of friends in Israel, in, yeah. in all over the world. Yeah. He was a Polish festivals before this one. Right. In this one, he was a visit. So he, he, he know, and know a lot of friends in all over the world. Uh, he's, he had a warm uh, heart. Yes. And he very loved to to um, to help people. Yes. And he's living in Israel at the moment. He was living in Israel as, uh, when he went to see the the, the festival. Yeah. Yes. Okay. He, yes. 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 He's and living does, in. Does he live uh, in that part where the festival was, or does he live somewhere else? No. She, he's living uh, in Tel Aviv. Right. With his girlfriend Ziv. Yeah. We are living in Tsuadasa. Uh, right. And the festival was in the south. Yes. And his girlfriend was able to escape. Yes. Um, because she had to hide, basically. They both hid. I don't know how much you want, you want to tell us about what happened, but. I will tell you, you. Please do. Uh, they ran away from the party. Yeah. When they heard an alarm. And they uh, go to a shelter that they found. A small shelter and included uh, 30 people. Uh, they're waiting for help. Yeah. And then after an hour, uh, two vans became with uh, 13 terrorists. Yeah. And they threw a grandes to the shelter. Right. And then go in and shot a live fire. Mm. They killed most of the people there. Yeah. Some of the bodies felt on his girlfriend Ziv. Right. She hid. Uh, she was buried. 
So she was underneath? Under yeah. those bodies. Right. For three hours, she didn't wow. move, she didn't speak, she didn't breathe. Yeah. She thinks she's uh, dead, and that she survived. Right. Elia was shot in his leg and started to scream. So he was also under the bodies as well? No, no. He's not under the bodies, on the bodies. Right. And because uh, he uh, scream, uh, the terrorists come and take him from there right. to Gaza. Yes. And I wonder why they didn't kill him, because they killed so many people. I don't know what... I mean, I, it's a stupid question in some ways, but I don't understand why they kill some people and they take other people hostage. This is a miracle. Yeah. This is a miracle that he's still alive. All, all this uh, situation was a bad miracle and good miracle yeah. for some of them. And, and you know that he's still alive or you hope that he's still alive? We saw a picture in Gaza, from Gaza, uh -huh. that he is alive. Okay. He looks terrified, but he, he looks okay. Uh, he wounded on his uh, leg. Yes. And from this moment, uh, we don't know nothing about him. Okay. And when did you first find out what had happened? Uh, on Saturday at 12 o'clock, uh, some uh, girl uh, sent me a message in Facebook right. and asked me if I know that Elia is uh, kidnapped. I, I asked her why she said that, and she said she sent me the, uh, the picture from Gaza. Oh. Uh, with the, it's written down the picture that uh, Israeli prison is, is in Gaza. Right. This is the first time I understand that he's wow. there. And yes, were you at very home? Very shocked. Yes, I'm sure. Um, were you at home on your own? Did, did you have other family there? Uh, me and all my family wasn't shocked. We didn't understand the situation. Right. We tried to, to search for him in the hospitals and they call uh, the police station, yeah. but nobody can help us yes. until uh, we, we recognize that this is that true. Picture. This is the trouble, isn't it? Because so many um, of the victims have still not been identified. They don't know for sure exactly who has been taken right. and who has died. Right. Yeah. All, all this situation, it's very difficult right. because uh, nobody allowed to come to the hostages and see what about them. Yes. If they are okay, if they are uh, need uh, some medical yeah. uh, care. Uh, and I know that uh, from the hostages that become uh, last week, that uh, they don't have a... Um, they, they, they told us that they don't uh, eat there, nobody see them, right. uh, nobody care about them, and it's very, very uh, afraid. Yes. That we don't and know. And what, what is your hope um, for the future in, in terms I of... I hope that uh, Hamas will uh, bring them back home as soon as possible. From my side today, yeah. I want uh, the the world will know that there are 138 hostages still in Gaza, mm. 
and we don't know nothing about them. Right. And we must bring them back here because they, every day that they're in there, her, their life in dangerous. Yeah. And would you send a message if, I don't know if your son would be able to see anything that you do? Elia, if you see this, uh, this uh, TV show, please know that we are very missing to you and we are praying to you every day and we hope that you, that you will come soon. We know that you will come soon and, with that, and we all hope that you are fine there until you will come. That's beautiful. And, uh, and how do you feel? How are you? Can you sleep? Can you, can you think about anything? I'm not sleeping at all. I'm not eating. Uh, all day I'm just uh, thinking what I can do yeah. to bring my son home. I do interviews. Yeah. I, we pray a lot yeah. because I believe in God yeah. that he bring, them, bring him back with all the hostages. Yes. My day is full with uh, people, uh, good people that come mm. to me, to our family and support us and hug us. Yes. And it's very warm. That's good. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us and, you know, we wish you good luck and hope that, you know, your wishes will come true. Thank you. We, we can only imagine I hope what, also. You, what you must be going through. And, and Aliyah, if you are uh, in any way able to see this, your mother is an amazing woman and uh, she will do everything she can uh, to get you back. Um, so we wish Aliyah luck as well. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank uh, you. This is Ziggy Cohen. Um, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break... As Boris Johnson prepares to give evidence tomorrow, I'm asking, what is the point of the COVID inquiry? And Peter Hitchens joins me in the studio to talk about the biggest BBC licence fee hike in 40 years. Do not go anywhere. Good evening. The COVID inquiry began on the 28th of June 2022, believe it or not, 525 days ago and about £100 million later. Uh, it's time to hear from Boris Johnson. But what have we learnt that we didn't know already and what will we possibly learn from him? Joining me live is Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakeshott, uh, somebody that I, I don't hesitate to say is a bit of an expert on the COVID inquiry. Uh, Isabel, we've talked about this an awful lot. I'm just seeing a story that's come out in The Times tonight saying experts have been apparently unable to... Uh, it retrieved communications from the first half of 2020 uh, from that old-fashioned uh, view of WhatsApp. Oh, well, that's disappointing. I mean, they should have asked me. I could have given them a great <laughs> deal of them. I mean, it, it does seem a bit odd that no-one has thought to just ask me for these things since I've got them, so mm. does the Telegraph. Um, yes. But anyway, uh, what they would see in those communications is a man who's quite tortured in a way, um, over how to respond to the pandemic, as well, you know, in fairness, he might be. Um, and you see someone who's wrestling with doing something that they instinctively really don't like doing. Boris Johnson is not a man who particularly likes the state bossing people around. You know, this is somebody people might remember years ago when Jamie Oliver had his big drive on healthy eating in schools. Boris Johnson suggested that parents might do well to stick 
fatty kind of pies through the railings of the playground <laughs> in rebellion at being told what their children should and shouldn't eat. Mm. So it was very much against his sort of ideology um, to announce lockdowns. And yet he really was up against the might of pretty much everybody around him, with a slight exception of Rishi Sunak, the then Chancellor. And then, of course, Boris himself got COVID and was very, very dangerously ill. And it became even more difficult for him to push back against all those around him who kept on saying we needed more, more and more lockdowns, because after all, he had nearly died of the virus himself. So it will be super interesting to hear whether he's got any regrets about the decisions that he made and whether he accepts that it, actually it might have been better to avoid repeated lockdowns. I'm, I'm not sort of holding my breath on that, but it'd be interesting to yeah. see whether we get any hint of it. Well, thus, thus far, we've had various um, former cabinet ministers painting him as uh, either somebody who was in charge or somebody who wasn't in charge. The scientists have more or less said that he didn't understand the science, and despite them trying to explain it to him, he didn't get it. So he's been sort of painted in that rather cartoony sort of way that Boris Johnson is often... Uh, portrayed as a bit of a buffoon. And presumably the, the questioning will follow down that road tomorrow, won't it? Well, I mean, given the track record of those who are conducting the inquiry, I'm afraid it probably will be. There's an awful lot of grandstanding there. Sometimes I'm afraid it feels as if the inquiry lawyers, the inquiry QCs, are kind of doing this for social media clips. I mean, I'm sure they take their duties very seriously, but the line of questioning often seems tremendously trivial and petty and designed to produce a headline, when what we really want to do is, in a very accelerated fashion, get to the heart of whether things could be learned. Um, and, you know, I've long been going on about the fatal flaw in this whole process. Uh, first of all, the ridiculous uh, sort of unlimited budget it has. Secondly, the extent to which it's geared around the victims and the bereaved, who, of course, we all, our hearts go out to them, but the inquiry is not the place for a mass counselling session. Uh, and thirdly, and most importantly, the whole damn thing doesn't have a deadline. And without a deadline it will go on forever. Yeah, it will. And I'm reminded of how ridiculous it all was by what's going on now. Piers Morgan does his show tonight from his house because he's got COVID. Loads of people uh, who work here have got COVID. Loads of people are getting COVID. Um, and nobody's running off and locking themselves away for the rest of their lives and wearing a mask. Stop doing that. <laughs> well, I'm not very happy to hear that the whole of Talk Towers is riddled with COVID. Well, it's not what I'm, I'm saying. Do not take my words out of context, please. I will be straight in the studio tomorrow and I will be taking my chances, as I did yeah. throughout the pandemic. Um, look, life can go on, can't it? And I think, as I've said many times, we can all forgive and understand and perhaps agree with um, the early stages of lockdown when, when the government didn't know what they were dealing with. For me, at the heart of this is whether it was justifiable, sensible, and with the glorious benefit of hindsight, was it wise to keep on subjecting the nation to lockdowns? Was that, on balance, a good or a bad thing? Yeah. And well, I don't think we're going to get those answers I from don't the think COVID. So, but luckily, Peter Hitchens is here with me from the Daily Mail, and he's going to answer that one in a minute for you, I'm sure. Uh, you just said don't give them any ideas. But what would what would happen, uh, for example, Isabel, if the uh, committee, uh, the COVID inquiry committee, came to you and said, can you give us all Boris Johnson's uh, WhatsApps? Would you hand them over? 
well, I think I would have to. I mean, the whole point of me um, having these WhatsApps in the first place was in the overwhelming national interest. It's in the overwhelming national interest that people should know what was being said. And actually, some of the most uh, illuminating things that have come out of the COVID inquiry, and there haven't been very many, have actually come from WhatsApp correspondence, because I didn't have anywhere near all of it. I just had Matt Hancock's correspondence, his private um, exchanges with most of the government, his cabinet colleagues and all the key players in the pandemic. But lots has come out from other WhatsApps. And I don't think uh, if uh, if those WhatsApps from Matt Hancock's project hadn't come to light, we'd be uh, we would have been privy to all the rest of it. Mm. Um, but I don't think, um, well, look, if they come to me and ask for it, well, we'll have to make that decision, but I can't see a reason to withhold it. No, indeed. Well, we'll look forward to that. Isabel, thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens is here uh, with me. It seems remarkable, doesn't it, that um, you've got this inquiry going on that actually isn't really an inquiry at all. A bit like COVID wasn't really um, perhaps as uh, much of a pandemic as they said it was. Well, I've, I've always striven not to use that word. I call it a panic-demic. Right. I still think that's what it was. And Isabel was just talking about hindsight. I can absolutely say you had no need of hindsight to yeah. see. Uh, if you did, if you knew anything about economics particularly, and if you knew anything about senses of proportion, it was perfectly possible yeah. to see that the, 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 it was a huge overreaction. And you're thing. the only person who took that view, really. I know. I it's, know. it's absolutely astounding to me. I think, and I would have thought, from what I know of Johnson, who I don't think is an ideological person, but who I do think is, is instinctively against this kind of bossing yeah. about, that he would have seen it. And here's the test. I, he had sought pretty much for all his life up until he went into Downing Street to be Prime Minister. Mm. It's what he wanted. He yes. worked very, very hard for it indeed. He got it. When he got it and he actually had the power of decision, he gave in mm. and didn't use the power of decision and just ran with the crowd. And when people talk about the science, there, there is no such thing as the science. There are many, many different scientific interpretations of practically anything. Uh, and certainly on that occasion, there were, there, were, there were differing sets of advice he could have taken. He took the sort of the, 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 the set of advice which led him into, in, in, into mass panic, the shutting down the economy. I was reading the other day something I'd written back, I think, in, 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 the, in, in late 2020 about this. And the, the point I was making is that it is absolutely clear that this is, this is destroying people's education, yeah. it's destroying the health system. And I then went on to say, and it will destroy the economy, it will separate people from their jobs, and it will cause an enormous amount of very serious yeah. inflation and higher taxes. And it, all of it was perfectly easy yeah. to see. I don't, I don't have, I'm, I'm not Professor Brainstorm, I don't have any particular access to any extraordinary, difficult, arcane sorts of knowledge. It was easy to see. Yeah. People didn't have, the, how, how, those who did see it were, were generally pushed to one side. I'm tremendously grateful to, 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 to my editors for letting me say yes. what I said. But well, indeed, it, when it, you and I first... A lot of people, I think, may have felt it and didn't have any way to say yeah. it. No, well, when you and I first started uh, debating it, I was very much um, of the opinion that you were wrong. Yep. Um, and later it turned out that you weren't actually wrong, and uh, I was very happy to admit that. I always love it when people say that. <laughs> well, it happens a lot, doesn't it? I mean, the thing is, is that in the end, um, now we're hearing people saying things like uh, that you said... But they're now saying them, sort of, you know, two years after the after the effect. And they are, but there was also still quite a large school of people who continue to believe that the thing was right, and was its only fault was that it, it wasn't done um, more swiftly and more harshly. And I think that is the, that is the line which is still yeah. very popular among official uh, official minds, among people who believe 
that the state should be more powerful mm. and that its power is justified by the supposed good it can do. On this occasion, the state did a lot of harm. Yes. And, oh, no and question. That's exactly why its, its power should be limited. No question. Um, your column this week was very interesting about Hamas. We were just talking yeah. to a woman there, a mother. God knows how she must feel every day, uh, a mother whose, whose son has been taken hostage by Hamas. It's, it's, a, it's un, un, unspeakable. It's, it's unthinkable, to, to isn't imagine, it? isn't it, these, these horrible people. But here's the thing. Uh, what I wrote about was I was going through my attic and found uh, one of the many goodies that we used to be given by the US government in the 1980s when I was a defence and diplomatic correspondent. Yeah. And this was a, 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 a booklet, a manual called Terrorist Group Profiles. Right. And it was a list of all the major terrorist groups of the world, including... Uh, I have to say, the um, Irish Republican Army yes. and Yasser Arafat's FATA. Mm. And this is 1988. Uh, it had been published and written. It had a foreword by the then Vice President, George H.W. Bush, mm. the older one, who shortly after became president, saying these people should never be dealt with, they were terribly wrong and bad. And then I went to Washington to work as a correspondent in 1993. And what was the first thing I did? I, I stood on the White House lawn. It's quite funny for reasons I'll explain in a minute. I stood on the White House lawn as Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, were forced to shake each other's hands yes, by Bill Clinton. I remember that. Yeah, well, I remember it because although I was, <laughs> although I was there, I couldn't see a thing. Right. I was on the phone, a very early mobile phone with about 10 minutes battery life, to Mrs Hitchens in, 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 in our Maryland suburban home who was watching it on television saying, what's going on? Because <laughs> you can't... On so many of these occasions, the foreign correspondent... You can't see anything, can't yeah. See, you can't get close enough. But it and there's was. the picture. But I can say I was there when it happened. Yeah. I, I couldn't see it. And I it was, was but, one of those great... It was a bit like that... I mean, although, again, I didn't really believe it, the, the Obama speech in Berlin about, you know, ridding the world of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Oh, well. It was one of those seminal moments, yeah, supposedly, but, where peace had broken out. But, but this, is what, this, this is the thing people have to realise. The United States will say anything and do anything. And here was the, here, here was the United States actually welcoming onto the, onto the lawn this man Arafat, who was I, I, I think actually an anti-Semite and a, and a man who had never, in my judgment, had any intention of making peace uh, with Israel of no. the permanent kind. I think that he, he 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 first of all he liked Israel. He once said, "I don't want to be mayor of Jericho." He didn't want to be reduced to running a small impoverished statelet. Yeah. And also, I do, I think that if he had actually reached a sincere peace with Israel, uh, he would have faced grave danger from his own side, as indeed, of course, did uh, Yusuf Rabin, who was assassinated yes. by an ultra-Zionist fanatic right. a few years later. But then shortly after that, uh, the other absolutely astonishing thing, and this I, 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 I wouldn't have dreamt of predicting when I went to live in Washington, it became a large part of my life, was the sudden laundering of Jerry Adams yes. and Sinn Féin, who then started appearing at the White House too, and I remember being called... I, I did, the White House became aware of the fact that I was pretty cheesed off about yeah. this, and I got a call from a very senior official there who, uh, who, who rang me up and said, why are you so worried? I said, well, I, actually, I think you should be paying a little bit more attention to the needs and, uh, and desires of one of your greatest allies, Great Britain. Uh, and, and she said, it was she, uh, she said, well, uh, would you feel that's the same way about Serbia? And I said, but we're not Serbia. And I realised, <laughs> as she said it, and she realised as I said it, that actually that's what they thought. Yes. They thought we were Serbia. We right. were just a nuisance country, which might have been useful to them on, on right. the same side once, but now it was much more politically important, and for, mainly for American political reasons, for Bill Clinton uh, to, 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 actually, to, to actually make a deal yeah. with Jerry Adams and force Britain to make a deal with Jerry Adams. 
amazing. You know the size of the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. Oh, it's, it's a small town. Yeah. And it's enormously influential, yeah. great dinners and everything. Suddenly, they were completely out of the loop. Yes. Didn't know what was going on. Uh, they, they made these stammered, hesitant protests, and, and, and the Americans just bulldozed past them. I don't care what you say. No. This is what we have decided yes. to do. And, what and was, was that the beginning then of the Good that, Friday that, Agreement? That was that ended with the great the the the, the, the instruments of surrender signed in in, yeah. in Belfast, uh, signed by the British government, yeah. but not I have to say by Sinn Fein, who never signed it, uh, in, in in which the end of, of British rule in Northern Ireland was. Uh, was, was made, in my yeah. view, certain, and in which we were forced to give in. And people say, but uh, when I say Israel should watch out, that the Americans will sooner or later push them into an agreement they don't want, right. they say, well, it's a nuclear weapon state. I say, we're a nuclear weapon state. Right. And yet we were compelled by the Americans to yeah. make peace with a bunch of, of uh, protection racketeers yeah. and, uh, and, 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 and small-time criminals in Belfast. Yeah. So don't be too sure what may happen next. If it suits American convenience, yeah. Uh, to, to, to bring this about, then it may well happen. And look at the way the Americans are talking about Gaza at the moment. Yes. They're clearly distancing themselves from the Israelis. And, and what will be the long-term result of this? Yes, fascinating. Let's finish up with the BBC. Uh, apparently, licence fees going up again. Um, I don't know what the justification is for that. I don't know whether they've given any justification. Why are they putting the licence fee up when they know that they're under more pressure now, I think, than ever um, to cut back on the expectation, at least, that it should all just be bankrolled by everybody. Well, I think while the, I think a lot of people are ceasing to pay the licence fee. Yeah, they are. Uh, they aren't. They, 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 I think they've lost a million or two. Cancelled direct debits, I think, quite a big problem. Yeah. People are no, no longer feel that the BBC is as important as it was and they get their broadcasting from other places so they don't feel they ought to. I think that I'd be perfectly happy for the BBC to get an increase in, in its licence fee if it agreed to follow the, the, the actual deal on, on which the licence fee is based. That is to say, it has to be impartial. Yeah. Uh, and it has to serve the whole nation instead of just serving Islington. Yeah. And if, I, there are several proposals one could have for that. One basic thing that I would demand of the BBC, by the way, which people don't realise isn't the case, is that it should be fully subject to freedom of information. Yes. Because it isn't. No. Uh, it, technically it is, but if you, if you actually attempt to find out anything about what goes on in there, they say, oh, no, this could interfere with our news gathering and therefore it's exempt. Yes. And almost everything can be exempted and that you, sh you, you, sh you, should, you should demand that. And then the, uh, the other thing I would want them to do would be to, to disgorge the Balin report, the mm. very expensive report they commissioned themselves on, whether, on, on, on accusations of impartiality yeah. over Israel, which they have never published and have spent huge amounts of your money and mine uh, going to the courts to keep secret. Yeah. They should absolutely not be allowed to carry on doing that while getting the licence fee. And they should also completely reform their, their complaint system. So there's yeah. a genuine. I, th I think it's too late system. for them. I, think, I don't think they could I possibly... Not. I don't think they could possibly become uh, impartial or be unbiased because it's gone too far the other way. Oh, should it, should it happen? Should the great miracle happen? Should I become the head of government in this country? I promise you I can make the BBC impartial. Uh, but you need to mean it. Yes. And the problem with the Conservative Party over the past many, many years is they haven't really understood or cared or meant it when they when they wanted to do anything about it. I think the BBC is a fantastically valuable institution. In many ways, I would it love, is. I would love to preserve it. What it doesn't understand or what its leadership simply have not grasped is that if, if it doesn't pull itself together, then it will come to an end. It can't be sustained as yeah. it is. The licence fee is, is a relic of the 1950s, and it will not be possible to levy it very much longer yeah. successfully.
Well, when you get Oliver Dowden, the Deputy Prime Minister, saying that we must all get FM radios and transistor radios and wind-up radios in order to make sure you can hear the government's... He obviously <laughs> hasn't quite moved along with the broadcasting times. Cat's whiskers, that's what you need. You know, I mean, not everybody's on FM, for heaven's sake. Cat's whiskers, no, I am. Uh, I, the BBC are. I'd still, um, I'd still be on the medium wave <laughs> if I could be. Yeah. I love the medium wave. Or even AM, yeah. you know, or long wave. I remember all long of that. Long wave is great. Robert's radios. Peter, great to see Short you. Thank wave, you very I much. Do, um, yeah, well, I had my World Service Radio, yeah, wasn't exactly. Anyway, uh, enough of all that reminiscence. You're watching Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stay right there, because up next, would the last person in Britain go out and buy some candles? No, it's not because Neil Kinnock's coming back to power, but it's a warning for the Deputy Prime Minister. We'll tell you what he's going on about next. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, you might not have had the greatest of years in 2023. After all, there have been rail strikes stopping you from getting anywhere, uh, energy prices that have gone literally through the roof, floods and storms, the highest taxes the Second World War, and a cost of living crisis that's driving everyone insane. And by the way, you still can't get a dentist for love nor money. But here at the Independent Republic, we are not in any way cowed, we are not beaten, and we are certainly not pessimistic for the future of Great Britain. After all, we are all resilient people, aren't we? Indeed, we are a resilient country too. Or at least we were. But there's one man who doesn't think we're resilient enough, and that man is the Deputy Prime Minister. Anyone know who that is? Yeah, apparently it's some bloke called Oliver Dowden. And he thinks we're not prepared enough for a series of catastrophes coming our way. He reckons we're too reliant on devices connected to the internet. So he's got a plan. He's setting up a website to help us be less reliant on the internet, which is obviously only available um, on the internet. He reckons we've got cyber attacks coming. We've been lined up for phishing scams, terror attacks, climate-related emergencies. Sounds great, doesn't it? But don't worry, Mr Dowden's got a plan. And here it is. He wants you to buy some candles. <laughs> Not just for Christmas. He wants you to buy shed loads of them and keep them in the cupboard under the stairs, even if you don't have stairs. He wants you to stock up on torches and batteries. Oh, and get yourself a wind-up radio as well. I thought that was what I did. No government policy, of course, is without its good points, like an institute or an academy. In this case, we're going to have a UK Resilience Academy, along with presumably a few dozen resilience leaders and lots of resilience volunteers who is going to get in the way? And why does this remind me of those nutters in America who barricade themselves in the basement with thousands of tins of baked beans, several automatic weapons, and a DIY guide to insurrection in case the government comes for you? In our case, we won't need to worry about our government rounding people up. They probably get that wrong too. But if you see your neighbours down at the local supermarket clearing the shelves, don't say I didn't warn you. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch and we want to hear from you. So let's hear from Roger uh, in Hounslow. He wants to talk about Rishi Sunak. Uh, Roger, a very good uh, evening to you. What can I do for you? Good evening, Mike. Yes, I've got my candles stashed away, so I'm all right then. Top man. Floor. I mean, I remember those days in the old uh, three-day week in the 1970s. It was quite good fun. Yes, it was, yes. Now, Rishi Sunak, um, for the life of me, I can't work out why he, he even wanted to become a prime minister. <laughs> the man has got more money than he knows what to do with. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I don't understand. And I think a bit like uh, when Peter Hitchens said Boris Johnson really wanted to be Prime Minister, when he got there, wasn't sure what to do. Rishi Sunak also really wanted to be Prime Minister, but I don't think he's got a clue. No, he hasn't. He hasn't. He's probably got his private jet ready to go a couple of hours after the election results come yeah. through. Well, straight to Santa Monica. Straight there to California, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's where he's got the house. Yeah, you may well be right. Um, but, I mean, do you see any way that he's not actually going to be the Conservative Party leader going into the next election? Could he possibly get done over before that? Um, I would imagine the knives are out for him, but I don't think it will happen because... The election's too close. They yeah. haven't got time to, to do everything. Yeah. So I guess they're going to be stuck with it. Roger, thanks very much indeed. I mean, this is the problem. You've got a Conservative Party that can't even rely uh, on the people who want to get rid of the current guy to get a new guy because they're too close to the next election, which might be in the spring, might be in the summer, might be in the autumn. Nobody really knows. But all that anybody really can say for sure is that whatever happens, unless there's some kind of miracle... Rishi Sunak is not going to be the Prime Minister after the next election. But does it have to be, does it have to be Keir Starmer? Does it really have to be him? I mean, for heaven's sake, there surely must be a better option. Uh, but you're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Coming up uh, in the 10 o'clock hour, a new year, same strikes. Junior doctors are planning to continue on the picket line next year. Plus, Prince Harry's in court. Who would have thought it? We'll tell you what he's been whinging about. All coming next. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, a united front. The King and Queen join Wills and Kate at the Buckingham Palace Christmas party as they brush off the racism row. Harry versus the Home Office, the Waterway Royal challenges the government in court after his security is downgraded, and junior doctors are going to stage yet more strikes in December and January after rejecting a new pay offer. Prince Harry to pay for his own Metropolitan Police security... Get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. Uh, Christmas is coming, though, when the goose is getting fat. And the bloody NHS is going on strike again. You guessed it, they're not getting enough money. Junior doctors have been offered nearly 12% more than last year, but it won't stop them walking off the job in the run-up to the festive season. So if you were thinking of making use of the National Health Service in the days just before Christmas, 
I wouldn't bother. The extremist British Medical Association have ordered their medics to walk out for three days from 7 o'clock in the morning on December the 20th and then another six days from 7 o'clock in the morning on the 3rd of January. So what this effectively means is that the people we entrust with our elderly relatives, our children and our friends when they are most vulnerable over Christmas will be causing the deaths of innocent people. There is simply no other way of saying it. The New Year walkout will be the longest in the history of the NHS and this at a time of year when we're told the health service is in crisis again. And leading up to Christmas, these so-called doctors will be off basically from Wednesday the 20th until the following Wednesday the 27th when the service will return to normal. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The NHS is badly run, badly managed and incredibly inefficient. Once again, we're being told that it's all about money and it's all about conditions. Well, these doctors don't deserve the 35% pay rise they're asking for. There are plenty of good doctors who don't adhere to the left-wing radical nature of the BMA and they won't be striking at all. Surely we can get rid of these people and bring in some doctors who actually care about their patients. I know uh, it's old-fashioned. They ought to hang their heads in shame. Merry bloody Christmas. Now, coming up later on the show, we'll bring you a first look at all of tomorrow's front pages with my panel. But before anyone else, uh, we'll also be telling you what's coming up in the next part uh, of the show. Inside the Sun newspaper, uh, Prime Minister's plan to shun flights meddlers. Rishi Sunak's preparing to swerve Euro rules that risk wrecking his plan uh, to fly migrants to Rwanda. We shall see. Moving on, though, Prince Harry is taking the Home Office to court over their decision to downgrade his security status after he quit as a working member of the royal family. His lawyer told the High Court he was unjustifiably treated less favourably um, than others. Now, are those others actual working royals by any chance? Who can say? I'm now joined by Talk TV's royal editor, Sarah Hewson, who's been following the case. Sarah, very good evening to you. Uh, looking very Christmassy there, I'm pleased to say. Um, to be honest, I've lost track of Harry and his court cases. I thought this one had already been done, um, but it appears to be back on uh, in front of the, uh, the beak again. What's going on? Yes, uh, you will remember, and you're partly right, actually, Mike, because this took place last summer and uh, Prince Harry uh, sued the Home Office. He was appealing to have the right to pay for his police protection when he came to the United Kingdom. He was denied that right, but he was given the right to launch a judicial review about the process, uh, the decision-making that took place by this committee, RAVEC committee, which decides on royal security in order to deprive him of the automatic right to police protection when he left the UK in February 2020. Uh, and so he's had that judicial review granted and it is now a three-day hearing. We had the first day uh, today, Mike, two more days, much of it, though, taking place uh, in secrecy because of the nature of these discussions around security. Right, OK. And he's not here, I understand, for it this time, so uh, we won't be graced by his gracious presence. Um, however, there's a bit of a royal charm effect going on across town. Um, uh, Prince, uh, both, both Prince William and Kate were out doing different things today. I think he was selling the big issue. And they're all together with uh, the King and Queen tonight at a Buckingham Palace sort of Christmas party. 
Yes, and a very powerful photograph published of the four of them, the King, uh, Queen Camilla, the Prince and Princess of Wales, the new Fab Four, as they've become known, united, seen in public for the first time uh, since uh, that uh, so-called royal race row re-erupted with the publication of Omid Scobie's uh, book in the Netherlands, which named uh, Kate and the king as having been accused by Meghan as raising concerns about the colour of Archie's skin. And I guess this uh, photograph is a kind of omid who it is them getting on with business doing uh, the job that they are required to do and hosting this huge diplomatic reception at Buckingham Palace for all of the ambassadors based here in the United Kingdom, the diplomatic corps, uh, you can see them. It is a white tie and tiara ball in the staterooms, a uh, reception rather, in the staterooms of Buckingham Palace, a glittering event, pulling out all of the stops and, uh, and I think, uh, distancing themselves from this row which is continuing to rage on. Yes, indeed. I do like a white tie and a tiara ball. I've never been, actually been invited to one. Um, I haven't got yeah, tiara, uh, a tiara or a white tie, but never mind. Um, so Christmas uh, in the sort of royal family will be traditional, presumably, as well. No danger of uh, Harry and Meghan turning up, Sandringham, the usual stuff. Yes, it will be. And, of course, we had the speculation that Harry and Meghan uh, wouldn't be averse to an invitation to Sandringham for Christmas, but that is now more remote than ever, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I so. you know, family gatherings at Christmas can be awkward, but this would be beyond uncomfortable for members of the royal family uh, following the latest allegations uh, being made. So I don't think we'll be seeing the Sussexes over this side of the pond anytime soon. And not least of all, because Prince Harry's still got his security case uh, going on, He's arguing that it's not safe for members of his family uh, to come to the United Kingdom without uh, the security being provided by the Metropolitan Police. And this three-day hearing, we're not going to get a decision on that uh, for some time, but also because of this row with members of the family. We had just started to get this thawing of relations potentially between Harry and his father, uh, Mike, with that birthday phone call uh, to King Charles and his 75th uh, birthday, and it looked as if things might be moving in the right direction in terms of those kind of relations, certainly between the King and Harry, uh, not between uh, Prince William and his brother, though relations still extremely strained. But this has really put a kibosh on that, hasn't it? And uh, I don't think we'll be seeing any big happy family reunions no. this Christmas for no, the Royals. exactly. So they've had one fat happy family reunion, as we can now see, which the Sun have, uh, uh, have put out there for tomorrow's paper uh, in all its glory. Um, but I suppose if you are telling the story to um, a judge that you need more protection when you come to Britain, it's best not to come to Britain to tell him you need more protection. Uh, how does one... How one does it, Harry? Uh, says the Sun. Uh, no doubt he'll be looking at that uh, on the internet in the morning. But let's talk now to former Metropolitan Police Superintendent uh, Leroy Logan, uh, who's come in to give us the benefit of his expertise. Leroy, good to see you. Thank you very much see for you. coming in. I mean, funnily enough, a lot of people, some of them even at this station, Julie Hartley Brewer was one, who said, you know, well, why shouldn't Harry have uh, police protection? You know, he's a public figure. He's got reasonable cause to be concerned. You know, there have been supposedly death threats made uh, to Meghan Markle. His mother, of course, was chased, some would say, uh, to her death by paparazzi photographers. Um, does he have a case, do you think? Yeah, I think he's got a good case to uh, put to the courts. It's a pity it's had to go to the courts yeah. to, to get this thing aired once and for all, uh, because it just adds to this psychodrama of uh, 
you know, he said, she said, yeah. saying, well, you know, you've got it only to blame yourself. But in a lot of ways, if you just do a clear risk assessment, there's a good case for him to yeah. have close protection. Yeah, what's the case? Uh, did I do a case-by-case -case kind of risk assessment of individuals who come to this country who live over, overseas, if you like. I mean, presumably, for example, there's supposed to be... I don't think it's been, been, been postponed, but Mohammed bin Salman, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, is supposed to be coming here at some point. I mean, he brings his own protection, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Um, but would he also get protection from the police? Yeah, because, obviously, they're not going to allow his close protection. They normally have firearms with yeah. them, so they wouldn't have that. So we, we, we'd... Uh, the parliamentary and diplomatic protection groups and specialist firearms officers will be there right. to give that sort of protection. But, yeah, it's, it's on a case-by-case. Case. Right. Um, and, and obviously what they bring with them and also where they're going. Right. You know, because uh, obviously um, if you're going to do, you know, shaking of hands along, you know, public streets and all that sort of thing, yeah. then you have a totally um, security footprint right. around them to ensure that not only um, no one gets near the principal person, but right. also they can spot those who might be known, so there's all sorts of... Right. Uh, but I suppose super, that's... Super spotters, yeah. etc. But in a way, that would be his kind of entitlement if he was a member of the royal family, because that's what they do. But, for example, if you were, I don't know, Taylor Swift, and you came to do a series of shows in London, and you decided to jump out of your limo in the middle of Hyde Park and start shaking hands with people... The police advice would probably be that's not a Get great back idea. In limo. Get back in a limo, <laughs> exactly. and we're not going to protect you because yeah. we can't. And yeah. so I, I see, I put him more in the Taylor Swift category now than I do in the sort of you know William and Kate category. Yeah, but yeah, I, I suppose it's a, a question of well, there's certain places and threats that's been um, associated with uh, Harry and Meghan that really you have to think there needs to be a permanent. Um, assigned unit uh, because of the profile and, of course, there, there's, there's been a lot of threats on um, high-profile people, including the royal family. Yeah. You know? no, so, so, so they're not absolved of those sort right. of things. So, of course, Harry, um, I, I think, has got a good question. Good, so good just to go to back to, to what you said before about the police kind of advising or, or telling, um, say, visiting um, uh, royalty or visiting sort of celebrities or visiting uh, politicians... Is it then the police's decision then as to who gets the cover? Is it the Home Office? Well, or is it somewhere else? Yeah, but that's through um, the palace and the Home Office. Yeah. But, you know, it, 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 you can't stop people from coming, if especially if they're a citizen, you know, but you, you'd have to right. say, well, listen, don't do certain things, don't go into right. certain places, uh, we can't guarantee your safety, mm. you have to use a common-sense approach and don't put yourself on offer. Yeah, because the other thing that people say that makes it possible for him to deserve... The protection is that he was in the armed forces. He was in Afghanistan. Um, he did in his book admit to killing quite a few members of the Taliban, which, which not, could not make very it very <laughs> Which wasn't the cleverest thing he could have done. Well, that's the risk level is even so higher. So that goes that. even higher. And not, is, there, is there not a case to be made? And I'm not on his, Harry's side at all. Um, I certainly don't want to pay for his security. He's offering to pay for it himself anyway. Um, but given that, that he was a, uh, in, in that instance, you know, representing his country, and he was actually. Um, you know, under threat possibly from, from foreign forces, surely while he's here, we should do it. Yeah, but that, that case, you know, is a good point, you raising it, because he's now put himself on offer yeah. by admitting these things. A lot of people in the forces don't admit these things, right. especially in autobiography. And then as a result of that, certain um, extremists yeah. are saying, well, you're on our target. And, and let's um, face it, these are troubled times when it comes to that Absolutely. Kind of if you add Gaza and mm. Israel and what's yeah. going on there, even on the West Bank in Lebanon, we, we have got a very 
hostile world at the moment. And this, again, has to be taken in consideration in yeah. terms of Harry and how he's been um, putting himself in, in some difficulty, right. even through his autobiography. And when he first went off to Canada to live, I think it was Vancouver Island or something like that, mm. uh, with Meghan before he moved to California, there were some sort of Royal Protection Squad people that went with him. I don't know whether they're still with him, um, but I believe we were paying for those or, or his father was paying yeah, for them at the yeah. beginning. And yeah. so what was the precedent for that then? Just father taking care of his child, right? basically. Uh, but I suppose, like, all good things come to an end. Right. And um, I, I think, obviously, the the, the the biography and interview with Oprah and all these things have alienated uh, people. And, and um, you know, the, the father's love is, well, don't put yourself right. on offer anymore. But is it fair for him to be in charge? I mean, I know he's the king and everything, and I suppose he should be in charge of everything, yeah. technically speaking. But, I mean, is it fair for him to be in charge of the deployment of individual no, no. Royal Protection Squad no. people? Because I don't think he should be. No, no, he's not. He's so, not. so... He's so, not, not going to be deployed. But did he sort of tip somebody in the wink and say, look, this guy fancy you looking after my son. Yeah. Would you mind going to Canada for a while? Well, he, he might do, but <laughs> you don't know what happened behind the scenes. But the royal household have their own um, assets. Mm. So if he, he wants to deploy members of the royal household, yeah. the only thing is jurisdiction. Yes. And, you know, going into different countries, right. again... That's that, the other that's thing, a whole isn't it? different ballgame. Because they they're not duty-bound to protect him in America, where he is, right? Absolutely. He has to get his own protection. Yeah. And similarly, when he came for one of the last court cases he was here for, he was sort of striding out of the car, walking into the court, um, seemingly without much cover. And, I mean, if I'd been... Um, uh, a professional kind of um, protection squad person, I'd go, that doesn't look very safe to me. Well, especially when it bumps into a cameraman. I mean, yeah. it could have been anyone, exactly. you know? And, and, yeah, so... So is he not a bit cavalier about all this? Yeah, maybe, maybe he's... Uh, he has been, but, and um, it, it, there's only certain... Maybe he's getting extra threats or risks coming to his attention that he just cannot take those things, those risks anymore. Mm. And I hope, I hope you know, he, he does be as careful as possible. Because I, I, I think it's got good reason to apply. I hope um, the courts will resolve it one way or another mm. to reduce this psychodrama, because we really got other things. Yeah, because the trouble is people look at him and go, you're just a spoiled brat. But no, I don't think anyone in their right mind wants to see anything terrible happening. And nobody no. wants to see a, a, an, in, a, an instance of, of an attack of any kind, um, which could have been prevented if the right protection was there. Yeah, and it only takes one person. Yeah. And they get that opportunity and, you know, everyone's going to feel bad about it. Yeah. Well, even things as, as, as I suppose, different as Keir Starmer. I mean, I was horrified that some guy was able to get onto the stage of the Labour Party conference yeah. and throw glitter over the potentially next Prime Minister. Exactly. I'm thinking, what's going on there? Yeah, I, I remember when um, someone was able to give... Um, uh, the Prime Minister was the name. Ex-Home Secretary. Oh, Theresa May. May, yeah. Theresa May gave her a P45. Yeah. yeah. And he was taking his time. And he walks right up to her. Straight up to her. And right. I was thinking, that's the Prime Minister. Yeah. It, it's not I mean, like... I used to work in America, and if you go anywhere near a president of America, you get shot. Yeah. I don't well, care what anybody says. They, they, they are going <laughs> to shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. Well, that's what they should be doing, isn't it? I know people say, oh, we don't want people carrying guns in this country. Well, I think in some cases you need to. No, close protection officers carry arms. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, Leroy, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you to Sarah Houston as well uh, for giving us the latest on uh, the 
love that's going on for the royal family here uh, in the UK. Uh, don't forget, we want to hear from you as well, of course. This is the place to get your opinion heard because we hear it and we, we say it and we tell it to all the people that need to know about it. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up, despite record autumn rainfall, this is good, uh, there are more water shortages on the way. That's right, we're running out of water. Plus, is it the end of the road for the Commonwealth Games? That and loads more coming next. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, now, despite record autumn rainfall, you know what you mean about that. Uh, there are more water shortages on the way. The water companies are threatening higher bills, more frequent hosepipe bans, unless we go all the way back to 1970s levels of water usage. Let me tell you, I lived through the three-day week uh, and water levels and uh, droughts in the 70s, and we didn't wash very often in those days, I'm telling you that. Uh, joining me live is Andrew O'Brien, Director of Policy and Impact at the think tank Demos. Um, Andrew, please explain. I mean, how can we have this much water falling from the sky and not have enough of it um, to do anything with? It could only happen in Britain, couldn't it, Mike? It really could, um, yeah. Basically, um, we haven't built enough reservoirs. Uh, so we haven't built a reservoir in this country since 1992, but the population has gone up by a huge amount. We've got more products using water uh, and more amounts of water, you know, power showers, bigger dishwashers, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and we haven't you know, kept our plumbers and everything, everybody up to date in terms of training and development. So we've got you know, leaky fixtures and fittings in your home. Uh, and as a consequence of that, we're not using the water resources that we've been blessed with right. as efficiently as we possibly can do. And if we want to you know, make sure we can live the lifestyles that we've all grown accustomed to, and I don't want us to go back to the 70s, Mike, um, we've got to get better at water efficiency, and that requires everyone yeah. coming together and uh, you know, making a bit of effort. But isn't it the effort and the people coming together bit uh, not necessarily the fault of the consumer, it's the fault of these companies? I mean, I go all the way back to um, about 2010, 2011, when I remember Thames Water was ripping up the streets of London saying, oh, we're fixing all the pipes because we've got the Olympics coming and we want to make sure that there aren't any leaks going on anymore. Now, they're still working on that, and that was probably minimum, you know, 14 years ago. And the, the leaks are still going on. We now leak some amount, ridiculous, 80 billion litres a day into the ground. Look, I mean, uh, yeah, what's the famous saying? You know, if, uh, I wouldn't start from here, but, you know, we are where we are. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I think we've got to look going forward. I think yeah, everyone's got a role to play. The water companies definitely have to, and, that you know, some of them are promising record levels of investment. But government, I mean, we haven't had... You know, we've got ministers for housing, we've got ministers for this, we've got ministers for that. We've not had a proper dedicated minister for water for many years. The current minister for water is also the minister for rural growth. Um, you know, as we outlined in our report, you know, just keeping the tax flowing is itself a full-time job. When you ask most people, what are the fundamentals in life? They would say food, shelter and water. So we need to get on top of this. We also need the people who make our dishwashers and washing machines to make sure there's water efficient as possible. We need house builders to make sure that we're using water efficiently as possible. And yes, yeah, as consumers, uh, you know, it's the obvious stuff, Mike, but, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, you turn your taps off, you know, don't use your dishwasher unless it's kind of fully stacked up. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody of not doing those from time to time, but if we can, if we can do that as consumers, if the water companies keep to their plans to invest, if government gets its act together and really focuses on this, then together we can make, you know, we can make sure we keep the taps flowing. A lot of people thought that privatising water companies was a good idea, but it doesn't look so good now because they're not very efficient. 
And in fact, they're so useless, it's almost as if they're actually public sector organisations. Can't we make them better somehow? Well, look, I mean, I think, like anything in life, that, you know, some of the companies are really good, some of them are not so good. Uh, or you know, have you got, I can't impact. think of one that's good, can you? Come on. Well, I don't know. I mean, we do, we we don't in this report go into evaluating the water companies, so uh, I don't feel qualified to comment. But look, I, I think we've all got to raise our game, Mike. And I think you know you make a good point that you know when we privatised it, I think we just assumed that water would be something that somebody else would do. You know, oh, right. the water companies will fix this. And you're right. You know, they've got to live up to their responsibilities. But ultimately, as well, you know, government's got to take some of the blame because we don't spend a penny on water at a kind of national government level, even though we subsidise housing and the road system and everything else like that we haven't given the planning permission to build the infrastructure that we need um and you know we we, we are now doing some urgent things like we're looking at better labeling of products you know to make sure that consumers can see what's water efficient what isn't but we need to do many many more things like that so um you know we've all got to take a bit of responsibility and privatization Yes, I think you're absolutely right, Mike. I think a lot of people thought, privatise it, everything will work yeah. out fine. It's not worked out that no, way. And it hasn't. But a lot of the, 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 the fact that reservoirs have not been built has been as a result of sort of net zero um, policies, the fact that apparently we're told that building in a, um, a reservoir is unenvironmentally sound. It's not environmentally friendly. So you're never going to get it past the local council. You're never going to get it past the government. Well, we, that's why we need a strategic voice in this. Um, you know, for example, we used to have a National Water Council, which brought together, you know, people providing water, but also big businesses that were using water and yeah. advising experts. We're saying in a report we need to bring that back. You're absolutely right, Mike. I mean, it's madness that, you know, we could live in the country which, you know, throughout the entire world, everyone thinks Britain, they think about rain and water. And because we haven't taken a strategic long-term approach... People, you know, we might be facing, as you say, more water shortages and the cost of this. I mean, in our report, you know, a drought, severe drought in the next few decades could cost this country 1.8 billion per day. So right. the economic impact of this, if we don't get it right, could be significant as well. And, you know, we've got to prioritise. Um, I think net zero is incredibly important. Um, I don't think it's an either or option, but you're absolutely right that we shouldn't be saying, oh, we can't build reservoirs because of this or because of that. We, we yeah. just need to crack on and do this stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. So we finally end on something we agree on. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll come back to the water question as well uh, with the panel, of course, because it's ridiculous, isn't it, that we have a country which is entirely soaking wet most of the year round. Um, but people go, oh, you don't think you water your plants this summer or don't wash the car, um, don't have any baths, you know, it might be too dangerous. It's ridiculous, absolute <laughs> madness. Um, lots of you have been getting in touch, though, uh, so let's hear from uh, some of you. Uh, Margaret is in Bedford, wants to talk about... Prince Harry and his protection. Margaret, very good evening to you. Yeah, good evening, Mike. And that hypocrite Harry and his never-ending saga of security. <laughs> yes, you, I take it you don't think you should get it, then? <laughs> I don't have much uh, time for Harry and Meghan. But I just want to remind people back during the Jubilee about what he thinks about security and how tight it is. Him and Meghan got into a big black SUV. It was stationary but about to move off. They were around with spectators around at the curb, very close to them. Yeah. What did both of them do? They both rolled down their windows on each side of the vehicle so they could wave yeah. at the people on the side. And anybody could have done the deed. Anybody could have done the deed. Right. And that's true. Well, I mean, the, prob the, the, the problem is, as well, is that he makes this argument that it's too dangerous to come to Britain. And then he keeps coming to Britain without the security. Well, we don't have to worry about her, do we? Because she'll never be back. Let's hope not.
Yeah. Well, if, if all if all goes well, thank you very much indeed. I've got actually uh, quite a few people getting in touch, and there was a poll that we asked: Does Prince Harry deserve frontline royal protection when he's in Britain? Yes, fifteen percent. No. 85%. Uh, Trish says this, not many people want Harry here, let alone give him protection, so if he wants it, let him go to a private firm and pay them. Our police have got enough to deal with. Uh, Cedric says he deserves the same miserably low level of police protection that the rest of us endure. <laughs> I think that's very good. Uh, my panel are back, Candice Holdsworth, Ryan Sabian, uh, Rafe Hadelman, Koo. Um, it's funny, I was listening to Julie Hartley Brewer earlier today and, as I say, she was saying that she thinks that we should provide security for him because he was in the armed forces, because he's still whatever, uh, whether you like it or not, an heir to the throne, um, and he is possibly a target of the Taliban. Um, what do you think? Well, I think he probably is. He probably is a high-risk person. But people said to him, or commented at the time when they, they left um, Britain, that that is going to be one of your biggest costs, mm. security. Yeah. And having to cover those costs themselves might actually be ruinous. Yes. And you just wonder, did he adequately consider that, or did he just take it for granted that that protection would be provided? Yeah. I think the trouble with Harry, Rafe, is that he takes for granted that all sorts of things are going to be provided for him, whether he is part of the royal family or not. He clearly thinks that he's entitled to an awful lot yeah. of stuff, doesn't he? If you want the perks and the privileges, you have yeah. to do the duty and, yeah. do, and do the work that comes with it, you yeah. know? And this is all a complete nonsense, actually, because he is getting protection. If he comes to a, attend royal events, he will be, receive royal protection. They have bespoke protection plans for him, depending upon his needs. But yeah. he has such an inflated impression of what he needs and his importance. Remember, at the coronation, we had the President of France very happy to come over. We had the First Lady from the US very happy to come over. Yeah. And yet Harry couldn't bring his children along because it no. wasn't safe enough. If it's good enough for the President of France, I think it's good enough for, for Meghan and so forth. And, of course, America's far more dangerous than Britain is. And he's quite yeah. happy to well, have his own security He's, he's gone there. to seek refuge, hasn't he, Ryan, in one of the most dangerous countries in the world, where yeah. more people have got handguns than... Uh, and they've got sort of toy chocolate bars or whatever it is. You know, it's ridiculous. I think, I think on balance in this country, if he's only coming in for a few days, I think the police should be with him or pretty you not I would say all times, but certainly yeah. when he's travelling about. This is a guy who, you know, served in Afghanistan. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's very, very finely balanced. And, you, you know, if he walks out on the street, you know, someone, someone could, you know, do something, you know, that they shouldn't do. So yeah. I, th I think, yeah, give it to him when he's here. If he's only here for... A few days every year, it's not, okay. I don't see an issue. Probably not a massive, massive cost. It'd be more embarrassing if something did happen to him and the police mm. didn't act. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, listening to Andrew O'Brien there, Director of Policy at, um, at Demos, saying we should have a water minister. What do you think? Any chance? I mean, we've got enough ministers, haven't we? Yeah, I, I think DEFRA and the Environment Agency, the, the Environment uh, Department for Environment, look, you know, do enough in that area. And I think to have a sort of solely dedicated person just looking at that, then you go into all sorts of realms of minister for, you know, women, men, all sorts of... You know, common sorts sense. Of common I mean, sense. Who, who would ever come up with that? Yeah, no, no, idea. exactly. But I, I do think, you know, so many people don't know how to, you know, save water in their own homes. Right. Can't, you know, can't we teach these things in, in school? Well, I don't think... You know, I mean, I blame the water companies. I'm, yeah, I'm not maybe having, they should I'm, teach people. I'm not having the water companies saying to me, please don't use any of the water that we're charging you for mm. because there's not enough of it going around. Well, how about you collect it better and exactly. stop letting it leak into the bleeding ground? That's the problem. Planks. I'm happy to put a brick in the lavatory system if I need to, but I don't think we need to because, you know, last year it was reported that one trillion litres a year yeah. is lost through leaked pipes. Incredible. That would more than make up for the amount of water we're now talking about. Yeah. So there shouldn't be a need for us to have fewer than our usual number of no. miles, however it's, many it's that may this, be. It's part of this new world that we live in, Candice, isn't it, where it's all our fault. 
Yes. You know, yes. I got a, a sign made and maybe had a hat made or something. <laughs> it's all my fault, apparently, that everything's gone wrong because I've been using too much water or I've been driving my car too much or I've been flying too much. Yeah, we have to you know. be with a constant permanent scarcity right. mindset. We have to fuss over our bins and yeah. fuss over our energy and obsess over our yeah. carbon footprint and now obsess over it's our time, water use. Time for some re-education. I'm sick of it, frankly. Um, the Royals have hit a lot of the front pages. I think we've got the Sun front page for you, um, which I don't have in front of me here, but they've uh, obviously gone... One for all uh, on the screen there, all for one. Um, and a big spread inside. It's quite a powerful picture, that, isn't it, historically speaking, uh, where you've got uh, Charles and Camilla uh, and uh, William and Kate, and it's like, cheerio, Harry. And I think this is the first time that Kate and Charles have, have met up since uh, the, this racism storm, yes. or so-called racism storm, over, over the past week or so. And it just sends, it just sends a wonderful image, doesn't it, that the yeah. royal family... I United, you, you know Harry, if they, you know, or the, the author of this book is trying to get one up on the on the Royals, and they're, they're not going to do it because the United, the, the Royal Family, are going to stand strong. And of course, a few years ago when we spoke of the Fab Four, we, we meant the Sussexes. Yeah, and the then well, they could have. This they, is our new Fab Four right yeah. here. We can see it. It's the like King the old, it's the like those old yeah, quiz shows, isn't it? Here's what you could have had, <laughs> and you show Harry this picture and go, well, instead of you going to court again for yet another case uh, where you're wasting taxpayers' money and your own money on lawyers. You could have been standing here. I know. And I just wonder if maybe interest is diminishing now in this scandal. I mean, this could... I think maybe they thought this could have been very damaging yeah. to them, but I don't think it has Well, been. I see Scobie's book is falling quite rapidly down the old Amazon chart, so I don't think mm -hmm. people are buying, you know, what's, whatever he's selling. Yeah, and also I, th I think the whole thing is, is, is sort of desperately sad, really. As you say, you had the, the Fab Four when, you know, William, Kay, Meghan and Harry were... Doing work for the the Royal Foundation, and then you saw that picture. Uh, you know the the Queen was it the um, Prince Philip's funeral? King Queen, yeah, the Queen, Queen, Prince Philip, and they yeah. walked up Windsor up the up, yeah, yeah. up the up the driveway drive there, and that just think what that could be. There could yeah. be a fantastic advert for this yeah. country. And it's just been ripped apart from yeah. all of us. Yeah, because all they do is whine, and no matter what they say, it sounds like a whine now. Everything does. They just look as if they're just unhappy people. And I was just in America, and I was asking people what they thought about them, and they said, "Well, America's just not buying it anymore because they're very privileged people. They've got lots of money. Uh, there's plenty of people just as just as there are in this country struggling uh, in the U.S. They don't have as much money as they used to have. You know, they don't have the same car they used to have, and they look at them and go, "Well, what have they got to complain about?" Because, you know, money is very much more of a driver in the US. And if you are as wealthy as they are, nobody's feeling sorry for you. No. Right. Well, what's I mean, their I'm... future, though? I mean, is this all they're going to be going on about for the rest of their lives? I know. I mean, they made this big move to the US. Aren't they going to grab all the opportunities there for them? I mean, well, just... I think I think they've taken them and and they've and they've burned them. Well, they've that's true. Them. They're a laughing stock in America. Everyone from South Park to the late night shows are making making a mockery of them. Yeah. Their projects have failed. I think that's why Scobie's written this book. You know, his whole life has been as serving a selfie stick in waiting to the Sussexes. And now that they're a busted flush, I think this is <laughs> one last chance to milk the monarchy. You yeah. know, and profit from their misery. <laughs> the last hurrah for him. Now, you might have noticed uh, we've got a couple of candles on the, on the desk today. Um, Oliver Dowden came out uh, talking of uh, you're not really not doing enough, you're not doing your part, you've got to do more. Um, he's warning um, that there are all sorts of catastrophes on the way. The thing I love most about his statement today is that, you know, we're all too reliant on the internet um, and so we need to be more resilient. So I'm going to show you how to be more resilient by putting a website on... The internet, <laughs> and you go. Yeah. Did you really think this through? Yeah, and there's now just going to be. A, there's probably going to be a run on batteries and torches. Yeah. All, all this. Oh yeah, you might be able to get any batteries tomorrow. No, everyone's absolutely. gone down there. But are we going to turn into a nation of nutters like the Americans? You know, where you <laughs> yes. go. 
You know, right, let's get some AK-47s, you know, lock them down in the basement, 100,000 cans of beans, you know, <laughs> a special tunnel that gets us to, you know, the motorway and gets us to have a secret car somewhere. Yeah. I mean, what's but going it's on? All, it, a lot of it is linked. There was a big report by the National Audit Office out, out today so that we're not ready to deal with extreme weather conditions, whether it's floods or Yeah, but again, it's not that, our you know, fault, is it? Yeah. It's their fault. Well, I lived through the ice storm of 98 in, in Canada when I had no power in minus 15 for three or four days. Oh. It wasn't just candles, a battery radio yeah. and a camp stove during all of that. So there's some sense. But, you know, in the 70s, when we were at a similar bad place economically, we began to have all these disaster movies, you know, right. Inferno and <laughs> yeah. the Poseidon yeah, Adventure. I can beat <laughs> you. When, we, when we're down, we'd love to just, you know, bathe in this. I'll take, I'll take your ice storm <laughs> and I raise you the three-day week of something like 1972 or three uh, when I was at school. And we only went to school one morning a week because there wasn't enough electricity or gas supply because all the coal-fired power stations were out because the miners were on strike and so were the power stations. And I remember, I tell my kids this and they look at me as if I've gone insane. I say, you know, we used to have one hour of electricity in the morning to make breakfast and one hour in the evening to have dinner and the rest of the time it was candles. And you had to talk to each other. There was no television. There was, I mean, we might have had a transistor radio that you could listen to. It wasn't very good. And so we did that for an entire term. Um, so, like, three months of that. And, and, you know, it didn't do us any harm. Yeah. It was quite good fun, actually. Well, but... I was back in South Africa in November. They have been having serious blackouts yeah. now for a while. But people do sort of make a plan, you know? Like yeah. Some people have generators, others will have Well, this inverters. is it. I mean, my sister lives in, in Connecticut where they get back end of quite a lot of um, hurricanes and, and, and various different storms that, that, that come up the coast. And after so many years of having blackouts, she just can put a generator in. Yes, yes. Um, and so now it just kicks in whenever, whenever the power goes off. And, I mean, I'm not suggesting we should start living like that. No. Um, but it's not as bad as he's making out, is it? I don't know what the teenagers would do. Well, you know, if you know they're scrolling on their phones probably just as much as mum and dad. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, they're they're there and on TikTok. Well, we know that the, you know the, the younger. I think there's a new younger generation coming behind Gen Z or whatever it's called, yeah. which is actually more resilient and who are you know fed up with all of this kind of you know nanny statism and and, and the gender ideology and the other nonsense that they get in school. And so they're actually going to be the people that are out there sort of chopping down trees and you know, making wood huts out of things and living in them. Yeah, well, you get formed. I mean, it's a formative experience if you live through an era of crisis. Yeah. You learn to be pretty resourceful, actually. Right. Exactly. And I think that's part of the problem, that we've got these, these infrastructures which don't work very well because the people running them have never really known what it's like to be in a bad position. Um, the next one we've got here um, is the porn story, um, where apparently Brits are going to have to take selfies. I don't think what they're taking selfies of... Um, to qualify to watch porn on the internet. I mean, is this going to mean nobody's going to watch it on the internet? Or, or is Oliver Dowden going to be another, you know, go back to buying porn magazines because you can't get on the internet? Well, when I heard we were going to discuss this story, I googled Brit selfie porn, <laughs> which it wasn't necessarily the best Never thing to do. Idea. Don't advise that. Yeah. But I think it's a complete nonsense, you know. The only people who are going to be disaffected here are going to be the lonely old elderly men who don't know how to use a computer. Right. Because the youngsters have VPNs, they'll know how to use yeah. their parents' passports if they need to use that. But no one's going to want to have a, a scan of their face, a selfie. So I don't think. On, I mean, I, mean, I think the, the probably, blackmail options they, there they are going to be. got this wrong. I don't think people that watch porn, particularly younger people, I don't think they're on a porn site. They're just, you know, sending porn to each other, uh, and they're making porn. I mean, that's not quite the same thing, is it? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. One, one thing I do think is is the privacy angle. All these people who do send their information out there. That's, right. You know, all these you hear about all these leaks and. Right. Mm. Also, the point, I mean, one of the things that I was told as to why um, Elon Musk decided to rename Twitter X is that X 
is by far the most searched uh, thing <laughs> in the history of the internet because people are always looking for X-rated this, X-rated that. So, so, the, so the search will always turn up X every single time. And if you're running one of these uh, websites that's, that's pornographic, there's a pretty good chance that you might be up to no good in terms of the law. And what are you going to do with... You know, are they really going to behave themselves with people's data? No. The blackmail options are a huge here. But there's also a more serious issue, actually, because those respectable sort of mainstream websites like Pornhub and so forth, yeah. if they have those requirements, people will just go down darker and darker alleys right. to really suspect sites right. where there's ter terrible content, actually. So and what is the backfire. actual point of this, anyway? I mean, I've, I've <laughs> sort of missed it. It's, so it's part of the new online safety bill, so to stop children viewing porn. Right. So they have this AI, AI technology that they say can scan your face and no. see if you're underage or not. I mean, they use well, it no, on Bad Instagram. luck with Owen Scobie. He looks about 10. <laughs> you know, he's never seeing any porn. But, I mean, I don't think anyone is going to like that. People like to do that sort of thing very anonymously. You yes. know, not having pictures of your face. No, you're not going to upload your face and go, here's me watching some porn. Hey, Mum, how you doing? How's it going? I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous. It almost like, felt like you had to upload your driving licence just to access some of that. But yeah. I don't know if they'll go that far. But... No, that does seem mad, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, you're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Up next, the panel are going to be sticking around because we're going to sift through some more of what's on the front pages and what's inside them as well. Plus, uh, I'll be telling you about a Tesla whistleblower who's broken ranks and he's going to lift the lid on the company's faulty braking system. I told you their cars uh, were a bit iffy. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Work. Now, I think by now you'll know what I think of electric cars. They're too expensive, they're driven by virtue-signalling champagne socialists, and they're not quite ready for prime time. I mean, we've seen the queues of cars at those charging points up and down the country, waiting for their turn for the elixir of life in the form of electricity. And we've also seen the hapless drivers at the side of the road waiting for a tow truck to load up the car because it's run out of charge before it's reached its destination. I've already revealed how some finance companies have now stopped insuring them because of the uncertainty about the reliability and cost of the batteries. Well, tonight, there's something else, and it's all about the artificial intelligence they use to operate the cars themselves. A former Tesla employee turned whistleblower has revealed that the self-driving vehicles might not be safe enough to be used on public roads. Lukasz Krupski says the AI software and hardware used by the autopilot system isn't ready, despite what Elon Musk said this week on X formerly known, of course, as Twitter. Now, I've never fancied a car that drives itself, and I don't want one now that parks for me and brakes when something's in front of me. Krupski says there have been numerous cases of phantom braking and even crashing, and he says it affects all of us because we are all essentially experiments in public roads. And even if you don't have a Tesla, your children, he says, still walk on the footpath. Thanks, but no thanks. This is the world of work. Now, we've got some breaking news for you just before we have another look at the papers. A 42-year-old woman has died and two others have been injured after a shooting in Hackney, East London. Uh, that was today, earlier today, the Metropolitan Police have said. Detective Superintendent Vicky Tunstall from a local policing team in Hackney. Uh, this shocking incident has resulted in the death of a young woman and our thoughts are with the family at this very difficult time. We'll bring you uh, updates on that, of course, as the night goes on here at Talk TV. Uh, meanwhile, though, uh, here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, uh, let's have a look at what's on the pages of the papers tomorrow. There's some other stories as well as the front pages, but there is one front page uh, that sort of grabbed me and it's from the Mirror this, uh, this evening. Christmas 
cosmetic surgery fear. And it's a mirror investigation. They say a Turkish medical firm at the centre of allegations of bot surgery is offering discount Christmas deals. Now, I hear a lot of stories about people going to Turkey for this kind of thing. And some of the stories are horrific, you know, where they sign up to, to get something done. Um, and then I heard one terrible story of a woman who went out to get some kind of tummy tuck and came back and was missing a kidney. And then the, the company had disappeared. They'd taken the money because it's quite cheap, I think. Um, and an awful lot of young women are going out and having all sorts of stuff done. Yes, well, there's been a huge upsurge of people getting plastic surgery treatment. Yeah. And they go for cheaper options, and the cheaper options can be really dangerous. Yeah. I mean, with these bum surgeries, I mean, it's if it's not done properly and they inject the solution mm. into, say, one of your blood vessels, I mean, it can travel to your heart yeah. and stop your heart. Right. I mean, you need to have a very skilled professional mm. doing that, but people go for the backdoor options. They go for the backdoor options, and also one of the problems I'm told by, by people who know about this is that, you know, quite often the surgeons don't speak English, and so you're having a conversation with somebody through an interpreter which is not really ideal when they cut you over with a scalpel. You've got no idea how qualified these people no. are. Are they, they, you know, are they registered up to... Are they qualified up to our, our, our kind of standards? Yeah, or ethical or anything. And the, and the trouble is, a lot of people... If it's costing thousands of pounds in this country, they're getting... People are getting cheap flights yeah. out to these countries. The amount that it costs them is... They're still quids in, as it yeah, were, yeah. but they're coming back. You know, they can come back with serious health problems. Yeah. Dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. Interesting story in the front of the Times, Rafe. KFC thwarts efforts to stop fast food outlets near schools. Um, this is where at least 43 councils in England and Wales have had their anti-obesity cha uh, policy challenge, uh, policies challenged by KFC since 2017. Well, yeah, well, actually, I'm, I'm in favour of having a sort of a ban on these uh, things near school. I'm not one for banning things generally, right. but I think the state of our school... And, and, you know, I've enjoyed more than a few shares of KFCs <laughs> myself, I should say. Finger-licking good they are. Um, but, you know, there is a problem with our kids and the obesity levels, and I think just it's in the early years of childhood where you set in motion the habits that will last a lifetime. Yes. And I remember years ago, you had kids who were being fed... Um, McDonald's by their parents through the through yeah. the kitchen through the school fences, yes. but they weren't getting that. Yes. It needs to be a happy compromise so that kids mm. do get something. But I think having these things at such easy, within such easy reach, I think is a mistake. Yeah, I'm amazed at how often I see groups of school children sort of after school at kind of between three and four, just lining up outside, you know, fast food restaurants, whether they're whether they're um, chicken I mean, in London in particular, they're all something other than Kentucky Fried Chicken. There's something else Fried Chicken, you know. But there's loads of them, and I'm thinking so. You know, you're going home after eating a load of chicken nuggets and then you're having dinner. So you're effectively having, like, two dinners, having already had lunch. It's mad. If you're eating your home-cooked meal after yeah. that, yeah. I mean, maybe you're full when that's happening. Yeah. I just wonder what's happening with food education now. Are people opting for healthy options and nice options as well, you know, tasty options? Right. Or are people going for stuff like this, which is easy? But this is a bit surprising as well, isn't it, um, Ryan, that KFC is actually challenging in 43 different councils in the country. I mean, that a lot of people will be quite... Horrified to learn, won't they? Yeah, I, uh, totally. I, I, th I think the, the the trouble is, if you think that school children aren't going to go to one fast food outlet, but that they'll be going, you know, walking three minutes, yeah. three, four minutes down the road, finding another one. But at least they're from exercise. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They have an extra chicken nugget for that. Um, front page of the Telegraph goes with a similar story to the the Times. They say Sunak's middleware in Rwanda. Minister threatened to quit over Rwanda flights law. Say the Telegraph. I think this is the the, the trouble Rishi Sunak's got. He's coming up with this emergency legislation. He either goes for this full-fat version where he maybe disapplies some European Strasbourg yeah. rules or he goes for a slightly lesser um, way, way through. And whichever way he goes, he's going to annoy certain members yeah. and that can trigger resignations it, 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 and he's got a big, big headache. Um, and this legislation... Um, 
is uh, is meant to be coming out. It could be published as early as, as Thursday. It's likely to drift in, in into next week. But Rishi Sunak is desperate to get onto this. I was out in um, Dubai with him at the COP summit, right. and we were only there for 12 hours. The main reason we were there for such a short amount of time is he wanted to come back and actually get on with this. Right. So he's you know he's desperate to find a way. It's, as I say, it's this sort of totemic policy that he's uh, that he's got. And, uh, and he, he kind of needs to make it work. Well, he does. Quickly. I'm not sure who's leading the sort of the rebellion, if you like, but they quote Damien Green, chairman of the One Nation Group, saying the government should think twice before overriding both the ECHR and the Human Rights Act and should not rush in to such long-term difficult decisions. But Robert Jenrick, who's the minister, says, well, no, this is we need to go harder and, and faster. This is the trouble. You're going to annoy that you've got Damien Green and the, the, the One Nation wet Tories um, on, on that side. And then you've got the, the sort of... Uh, I think Mark Francois and David Jones were out this evening saying that you have to do it our way. Yeah. So he's got he's, he's it's a lose lose really situation. But just, right. just remember, as Matt Goodwin has shown, Tory MPs are to the left not only of Tory voters on immigration, but to the left of the general public on yes. immigration. Which is hard to if imagine. If wants to actually show that he's on the side of the people, yeah. he might have a standoff with with these with these ministers. Well, they're granted, you know, he can't risk defeat of his emergency legislation at the same time. I mean, would it matter now if more ministers resigned? I think people would just sort of go. Oh. God's sake, yeah, not, another, not another one. Yeah, they're kind of in a bit of a death spiral now. Yeah. And as everyone said, it's maybe... Good, it's a good phrase, that, death spiral. <laughs> they're just trying to shore up votes. Yeah. I mean, nothing's working. They had a bit of a, a bump with the net zero yeah. tweaks, but there's nothing that's really sort of changed the, 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 the calculus. No. And they're still way behind Labour. And it just seems that people want to change. Yeah, they can't move well, the dog. Every, every time... Sunak has a reset, he goes down in the polls. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, he's reinvented the term <laughs> reset, you know, just to make it worse. Um, Sickener, headline on the uh, page seven story in The Sun, Christmas Hospital Hell. As I was saying earlier, this is something that's really going to anger people because it's not so much the three days and the six days of strikes, it's the fact that when they are. Because when you start striking on the 20th, Wednesday of December, um, you stop striking on the Saturday before Christmas Eve, Everybody knows that the weekend of that week is, is not going to be full of doctors in hospitals. They're not going to be there. So they're effectively going to be off the 23rd, the 24th, the 25th, the 26th. They might go back on the 27th. It's a week, yeah. basically, of a three-day strike. Yeah, this is like the second Christmas that, that, that they've done this as well. Yeah. And they've, in the sun here, they've circled the 22nd of, uh, of December. That's known as Black Eye Friday, when I think every, uh, traditionally <laughs> people have gone out... Uh, <laughs> Probably drunk too much. Yeah. The old black eyes. Been, yeah. You know, well, people have accidents over Christmas. Yeah, they do. Yeah. All sorts of reasons. Yeah. More people at home. You know, you're coming down for the eggnog at sort of 11 o'clock at night after you've had a nap and you fall down the stairs. I mean, there's an incredible amount of actual A&E admissions and on then, those days. And then you have to be relying on the consultants. Are yeah. the consultants going to be filling these roles? Now, I'm sure it's all very well and good they're going to do that the rest of the time of the year. But getting them to, to come in, it's asking them a lot when they want to spend time with their families as well. Yes. Now, we should talk about Boris Johnson as well. He's on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. It's going to be box office tomorrow, Ryan, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, COVID inquiry have finally got the sort of... Uh, uh, got their man, if you like. Um, yeah. uh, Bojo, I got COVID's big calls right. Oh, it's your story. It's my story, yes. Um, sorry, <laughs> forgive me for not spotting the byline earlier. Um, so, um, what we're going to see tomorrow, is he going to be contrite Boris? Is he going to be fiery Boris? I, th I, think, I think he's going to go... Talk about the policies. Mm. He doesn't want to go for the personality. So over recent weeks, we've seen Dominic Cummings, yeah. we've seen Sajid Javid um, all give evidence. And I don't think he wants to particularly um, attack them. He's going to, he's going to apologise. There's going to be that unreserved apology. And he's, but he's going to tell everyone that he got the big calls right. 
So the vaccine rollout, you didn't lock down um, when Omicron was, uh, yeah. was, was, going, was, was going through the country. Um, and also the, the NHS wasn't overwhelmed. That, uh, you know, they had problems, but he will say that there wasn't overwhelmed. So he'll, he'll talk up that to an extent. But he said that, you know, he will recognise there will be problems. And one early thing that he's going to get questioned on is that very first lockdown. Yeah. There was that discussion in, uh, in, in Downing Street about locking down at the end of February 2020. Yeah. He didn't lock down for another three weeks. And that's one thing that he's going to have to explain tomorrow. That's the one that Whitty said should have done, gone earlier. That's right. Uh, is that not right, Rafe? Yeah, it is. But, you know, my, my view is... You know, Boris Johnson has tried to compare himself to Churchill so much, even wrote a biography of, of Churchill. Yeah. And, you know, this was the biggest event since the Second World War. Cometh the hour, cometh the man, and he didn't rise to the occasion, right. I think. And if only he had struck, stuck to his instincts, actually, on lockdown. You know, the Swedes were so happy that Britain was going along with them towards having a, a much looser approach to lockdown. Yes. And, uh, you know, because of Neil Ferguson's modelling, he backtracked on that. I think we'd be looking back on him a lot more favourably if he actually stuck to his yes. principles. Also, I don't remember Churchill ever walking away from the office of the Prime Minister with the words, hasta la vista. I'm not <laughs> sure where he got that one from. Um, finally, uh, flush them out. Interesting story from uh, The Sun again on the situation in Gaza. Obviously, the tunnels are still very much where we believe many of the hostages are held. We spoke to the mother of one of the hostages, an incredible woman, an incredible story today, uh, tonight. Um, it's a good idea to flood the tunnels, but they might have hostages in them. These are two conflicting objectives. They're war objectives mm. and getting the hostages yeah. back. I mean, this is what the Egyptians did years right. ago when the, the tunnels were being used to smuzzle, smuggle goods into right. Gaza. Okay. They flooded them with seawater. Yeah. So it is something that can work rather than going yes. in, which is very dangerous, or blowing them up. Right. But what if there are hostages in there? What do you do? I, I mean, this is a real Sophie's choice mm. that Israel has right now, choosing between these yeah. two different, very, very conflicting aims. Yes. And there's also a concern there may be a second level of secret tunnels right. in there. So even if they do think that it's going to so work... So another on, level below them. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be... It's, gonna be it's, it's a tactic, whether it works or not. It's, yeah. But, I mean, the whole issue of the tunnels is something that doesn't get spoken about enough, you know. You know, uh, Gaza would not be in such a bad position if the money that was given to yeah. the region wasn't spent yeah. building these hugely expensive tunnels, you know, yeah. 311 miles. And I never hear Owen Jones and these, uh, you know, apologists for Hamas actually countering that argument. You know, things could be a lot better if money wasn't, was yeah. spent on the people rather than building these yeah. tunnels. And no Absolutely shelters. Right. Guys, we're, we're out of time, incredibly. Um, thank you so much. Uh, very much uh, fun was had and some very serious stories as well. Uh, we'll be back, of course, tomorrow night. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thanks to everybody for being here. Thanks to all of you for watching. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. That was quite slick. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.